Chapter Thirteen, Part Two of Autobiography of Theodore Roosevelt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Autobiography of Theodore Roosevelt, Chapter Thirteen: Social and Industrial Justice, Part Two. Meanwhile, the governor of Pennsylvania had all the Pennsylvania militia in the anthracite region, although without any effect upon the resumption of mining. The method of action upon which I had determined the last resort was to get the governor of Pennsylvania to ask me to keep order. Then I would put in the army under the command of some first-rate general. I would instruct this general to keep absolute order, taking any steps whatever that were necessary to prevent interference by the strikers or their sympathizers with the men who wanted to work. I would also instruct him to dispossess the operators and run the mines as a receiver until such time as the commission might make its report and until I, as President, might issue further orders in view of this report. I had to find a man who possessed the necessary good sense, judgment, and nerve to act in such an event. He was ready to hand in the person of Major General Schofield. I sent for him, telling him that if I had to make use of him it would be because the crisis was only less serious than that of the Civil War, that the action taken would be practically a war measure, and that if I sent him he must act in a purely military capacity under me as commander-in-chief, paying no heed to any authority, judicial or otherwise, except mine. He was a fine fellow, a most respectable-looking old boy, with side-whiskers and a black skull-cap, without any of the outward aspect of the conventional military dictator, but in both nerve and judgment he was all right, and he answered quietly that if I gave the order he would take possession of the mines, and would guarantee to open them and to run them without permitting any interference, either by the owners, or the strikers, or anybody else, so long as I told him to stay. I then saw Senator Key, who, like every other responsible man in high position, was greatly wrought up over the condition of things. I told him that he need be under no alarm as to the problem not being solved, that I was going to make another effort to get the operators and miners to come together, but that I would solve the problem in any event and get coal. That, however, I did not wish to tell him anything of the details of my intention, but merely to have him arrange, whenever I gave the word, the Governor of Pennsylvania should request me to intervene, that when this was done I would be responsible for all that followed, and would guarantee that the coal famine would end forthwith. The Senator made no inquiry or comment, and merely told me that he in his turn would guarantee that the Governor would request my intervention the minute I asked that the request be made. These negotiations were concluded with the utmost secrecy, General Schofield being the only man who knew exactly what my plan was, and Senator Key, two members of my cabinet, and ex-President Cleveland, and the other men whom I proposed to put on the commission, the only other men who knew that I had a plan. As I have above outlined, my efforts to bring about an agreement between the operators and miners were finally successful. I was glad not to have to take possession of the mines on my own initiative by means of General Schofield and the regulars. I was all ready to act, and would have done so without the slightest hesitation or a moment's delay if the negotiations had fallen through. And my action would have been entirely effective." but it is never well to take drastic action if the result can be achieved with equal efficiency in a less drastic faction, and although this was a minor consideration, I was personally saved a good deal of future trouble by being able to avoid this drastic action. At the time I should have been almost unanimously supported. With the famine upon them the people would not have tolerated any conduct that would have thwarted what I was doing. 
Probably no man in Congress, and no man in the Pennsylvania State Legislature, would have raised his voice against me. Although there would have been plenty of muttering, nothing would have been done to interfere with the solution of the problem which I had devised, until the solution was accomplished and the problem ceased to be a problem. Once this was done, and when people were no longer afraid of a coal family, and began to forget that they had ever been afraid of it, and to be indifferent as regards the consequences to those who put an end to it, then my enemies would have plucked up heart and begun a campaign against me. I doubt if they could have accomplished much anyway, for the only effective remedy against me would have been impeachment, and that they would not have ventured to try. One of my appointees on the Anthracite Strike Commission was Judge George Gray of Delaware, a Democrat whose standing in the country was second only to that of Grover Cleveland. A year later he commented on my action as follows. I have no hesitation in saying that the President of the United States was confronted, in October 1902, by the existence of a crisis more grave and threatening than any that had occurred since the Civil War. I mean that the cessation of mining in the anthracite country, brought about by the dispute between miners and those who controlled the greatest natural monopoly in this country, and perhaps in the world, had brought upon more than one-half of the American people a condition of deprivation of one of the necessaries of life, and the probable continuance of the dispute threatened not only the comfort and health, but the safety and good order of the nation. He was without legal or constitutional power to interfere, but his position as President of the United States gave him an influence, a leadership as first citizen of the Republic, that enabled him to appeal to the patriotism and good sense of the parties to the controversy, and to place upon them the moral coercion of public opinion, to agree to an arbitrament of the strike then existing, and threatening consequences so direful to the whole country. He acted promptly and courageously, and in so doing averted the dangers to which I have alluded. So far from interfering or infringing upon property rights, the President's actions tended to conserve them. The peculiar situation, as regards the anthracite coal interest, was that they controlled a natural monopoly of a product necessary to the comfort and to the very life of a large portion of the people. A prolonged deprivation of the enjoyment of this necessary of life would have tended to precipitate an attack upon those property rights of which you speak, for, after all, it is vain to deny that this property, so peculiar in its conditions, and which is properly spoken of as a natural monopoly, is affected with a public interest. I do not think that any President ever acted more wisely, courageously, or promptly in a national crisis. Mr. Roosevelt deserves unstinted praise for what he did. They would doubtless have acted precisely as they acted as regards the acquisition of the Panama Canal Zone in 1903, and the stoppage of the Panic of 1907 by my action in the Tennessee Coal and Iron Company matter. Nothing could have made the American people surrender the Canal Zone. But after it was an accomplished fact, and the canal was under way, then they settled down to comfortable acceptance of the accomplished fact, and as their own interests were no longer in jeopardy, they paid no heed to the men who attacked me because of what I had done, and also continued to attack me, although they are exceedingly careful not to propose to right the wrong, in the only proper way, if it really was a wrong, by replacing the old Republic of Panama under a tyranny of Colombia, and giving Colombia sole or joint ownership of the canal itself. In the case of the Panic of 1907, as in the case of Panama, what I did was not only done openly, but depended for its effect by being done with the widest advertisement. Nobody in Congress ventured to make an objection at the time. No serious leader, outside, made any objection. 
The one concern of everybody was to stop the panic, and everybody was overjoyed that I was willing to take the responsibility of stopping it upon my old soldiers. But a few months afterward, the panic was a thing of the past. People forgot the frightful condition of alarm in which they had been. They no longer had a personal interest in preventing any interference with the stoppage of the panic. Then the men who had not dared to raise their voices until all danger was past, came bravely forth from their hiding-places and denounced the action which had saved them. They had kept a hushed silence when there was danger. They made clamorous outcry when there was safety in doing so. Just the same course would have been followed in connection with the anthracite coal-strike if I had been obliged to act in the fashion I intended to act, had I failed to secure a voluntary agreement between the miners and the operators. Even as it was, my action was remembered with rancor by the heads of the great moneyed interests, and as time went by was assailed with constantly increasing vigor by the newspapers these men controlled. Had I been forced to take possession of the mines, these men and the politicians hostile to me would have waited until the popular alarm was over, and the popular needs met, just as they waited in the case of the Tennessee Coal and Iron Company, and then they would have attacked me precisely as they did attack me as regards the Tennessee Coal and Iron Company. Of course, in labor controversies it was not always possible to champion the cause of the workers, because in many cases strikes were called which were utterly unwarranted, and were fought by methods which cannot be too harshly condemned. No straightforward man can believe, and no fearless man will assert, that a trade union is always right. That man is an unworthy public servant, who by speech or silence, by direct statement or cowardly evasion, invariably throws the weight of his influence on the side of the trade union, whether it is right or wrong. It has occasionally been my duty to give utterance to the feelings of all right-thinking men by expressing the most emphatic disapproval of unwise or even immoral notions by representatives of labor. The man is no true democrat, and if an American is unworthy of the traditions of his country, who, in problems calling for the exercise of a moral judgment, fails to take his stand in conduct and not on class. There are good and bad wage-workers just as there are good and bad employers, and good and bad men of small means and of large means alike. But a willingness to do equal and exact justice to all citizens, irrespective of race, creed, section, or economic interest and position, does not imply a failure to recognize the enormous economic, political, and moral possibilities of the trade union. Just as democratic government cannot be condemned because of errors and even crimes committed by men democratically elected, so trade unionism must not be condemned because of errors or crimes of occasional trade union leaders. The problem lies deeper. While we must repress all illegalities and discourage all immoralities, whether of labor organizations or of corporations, we must recognize the fact that today the organization of labor into trade unions and federations is necessary, is beneficent, and is one of the greatest possible agencies in the attainment of a true industrial, as well as a true political, democracy in the United States. It is a fact which many well-intentioned people even today do not understand. They do not understand that the labor problem is a human and a moral as well as an economic problem, that a fall in wages, an increase in hours, a deterioration of labor conditions, mean wholesale moral as well as economic degeneration, and the needless sacrifice of human lives and human happiness, while a rise of wages, a lessening of hours, a bettering of conditions, mean an intellectual, moral, and social uplift of millions of American men and women. 
There are employers today who, like the great coal operators, speak as though they were lords of these countless armies of Americans, who toil in factory, in shop, in mill, and in the dark places under the earth. They fail to see that all these men have the right and the duty to combine to protect themselves and their families from want and degradation. They fail to see that the nation and the government, within the reach of fair play and a just administration of the law, must inevitably sympathize with the men who have nothing but their wages, with the men who are struggling for a decent life, as opposed to men, however honorable, who are merely fighting for larger profits and an autocratic control of big business. Each man should have all he earns, whether by brain or body, and the dictator, the great industrial leader, is one of the greatest of earners, and should have a proportional reward. But no man should live on the earnings of another, and there should not be too gross inequality between service and reward. There are men of today, men of integrity and intelligence, who honestly believe that we must go back to the labor conditions of half a century ago. They are opposed to trade unions, root and branch. They note the unworthy conduct of many labor leaders. They find instances of bad work by union men, of a voluntary restriction of output, of vexations and violent strikes, of jurisdictional disputes between unions which often disastrously involve the best-intentioned and fairest of employers. All these things occur and should be repressed. But the same critic of the trade union might find equal causes of complaint against individual employers of labor, or even against great associations of manufacturers. He might find many great instances of an unwarranted cutting of wages, of flagrant violations of factory laws and tenement house laws, of the deliberate and systematic cheating of employees, by means of truck stores, of the speeding up of work to a point which is fatal to the health of the workmen, of the sweating of foreign-born workers, of the drafting of feeble little children into dusty workshops, of blacklisting, of putting spies into union meetings, and of the employment in strike times of vicious and desperate ruffians, who are neither better nor worse than are the thugs who are occasionally employed by unions under the sinister name entertainment committees. I believe that the overwhelming majority, both of workmen and of employers, are law-abiding, peaceful, and honorable citizens, and I do not think that it is just to lay up the errors and wrongs of individuals to the entire group to which they belong. I also think, and this is a belief which has been borne upon me through many years of practical experience, that the trade union is growing constantly in wisdom as well as in power, and it is becoming one of the most efficient agencies toward the solution of our industrial problems, the elimination of poverty and of industrial disease and accidents, the lessening of employment, the achievement of industrial democracy, and the attainment of a larger measure of social and industrial justice. If I were a factory employee, a workman on the railroads, or a wage earner of any sort, I would undoubtedly join the union of my trade. If I disapproved of its policy, I would join in order to fight that policy. If the union leaders were dishonest, I would join in order to put them out. I believe in the union, and I believe that all men who are benefited by the union are morally bound to help to the extent of their power in the common interests advanced by the union. Nevertheless, irrespective of whether a man should or should not, and does or does not, join the union of his trade, all the rights, privileges, and immunities of that man, as an American, and as a citizen, should be safeguarded and upheld by the law. We dare not make an outlaw of any individual or any group, whatever his or its opinions or professions. The non-unionist, like the unionist, must be protected in all his legal rights by the full weight and power of the law. 
This question came up before me in the shape of a right of a non-union printer named Miller to hold his position in the government printing office. As I said before, I believe in trade unions. I always prefer to see a union's shop. But any private preferences cannot control my public actions. The government can recognize neither union men nor non-union men as such, and it is bound to treat both exactly alike. In the government printing office, not many months prior to the opening of the presidential campaign of 1904, when I was up for re-election, I discovered that a man had been dismissed, because he did not belong to the union. I reinstated him. Mr. Gompers, the President of the American Federation of Labor, with various members of the Executive Council of that body, called upon me to protest on September 29, 1903, and I answered them as follows. I thank you and your committee for your courtesy, and I appreciate the opportunity to meet with you. It will always be a pleasure to see you or any representative of your organizations or of your Federation as a whole. As regards the Miller case, I have little to add to what I have already said. In dealing with it, I ask you to remember that I am dealing purely with the relations of government to its employees. I must govern my action by the laws of the land, which I am sworn to administer, and which differentiate any case in which the government of the United States is a party from all other cases whatsoever. These laws are enacted for the benefit of the whole people, and cannot and must not be construed as permitting the crimination against some of the people. I am President of all the people of the United States, without regard to creed, color, birthplace, occupation, or social condition. My aim is to do equal and exact justice as among them all. In the employment and dismissal of men in the government service, I can no more recognize the fact that a man does or does not belong to a union as being for or against him, than I can recognize the fact that he is a Protestant or a Catholic, a Jew or a Gentile, as being for or against him. In the communications sent me by various labor organizations protesting against the retention of Miller in the government printing office, the grounds alleged are twofold. One, that he is a non-union man. Two, that he is not personally fit. The question of his personal fitness is one to be settled in the routine of administrative detail, and cannot be allowed to conflict with or to complicate the larger question of governmental discrimination for or against him, or any other man, because he is or is not a member of a union. This is the only question now before me for my decision, and, as to this, my decision is final. Because of things I have done on behalf of justice to the working man, I have often been called a socialist. Usually I have not taken the trouble even to notice the epithet. I am not afraid of names, and I am not one of those who fear to do what is right, because someone else will confound me with partisans with whose principles I am not in accord. Moreover, I know that many American socialists are high-minded and honorable citizens, who in reality are merely radical social reformers. They are oppressed by the brutalities and industrial injustices which we see everywhere about us. When I recall how often I have seen socialists and ardent non-socialists working side by side for some specific measure of social or industrial reform, and how I have found opposed to them on the side of privilege many shrill reactionaries who insist on calling all reformers socialists, I refuse to be panic-stricken by having this title mistakenly applied to me. Nonetheless, without imputing their motives, I do disagree most emphatically with both the fundamental philosophy and the proposed remedies with the Marxian socialists. These socialists are unalterably opposed to our whole industrial system. They believe that the payment of wages means everywhere and inevitably an exploitation of the laborer by the employer, and that this leads inevitably to a class war between those two groups, 
or, as they would say, between the capitalists and proletariat. They assert that this class war is already upon us, and can only be ended when capitalism is entirely destroyed, and all the machines, mills, mines, railroads, and other private property used in production are confiscated, expropriated, or taken over by the workers. They do not as a rule claim, although some of the sinister extremists among them do, that there is and must be a continual struggle between two great classes, whose interests are opposed and cannot be reconciled. In this war they insist that the whole government, national, state, and local, is on the side of the employers, and is used by them against the workmen, and that our law and even our common morality are class weapons, like a policeman's club or a gatling gun. I have never believed, and do not to-day believe, that such a class war is upon us, or need ever be upon us, nor do I believe that the interests of wage-earners and employers cannot be harmonized, compromised, and adjusted. It would be idle to deny that wage-earners have certain different economic interests from, let us say, manufacturers or importers, just as farmers have different interests from sailors and fishermen from bankers. There is no reason why any of these economic groups should not consult their group interests by any legitimate means, and with due regard to the common overlying interests of all. I do not even deny that the majority of wage-earners, because they have less property and less industrial security than others, and because they do not own the machinery with which they work, as does the farmer, are perhaps in greater need of acting together, than are other groups in the community. But I do insist, and I believe that the great majority of wage-earners take the same view, that employers and employees have overwhelming interests in common, both as partners in industry and as citizens of the Republic, and that where these interests are apart they can be adjusted by so altering our laws and their interpretation as to secure to all members of the community social and industrial justice. I have always maintained that our worst revolutionaries today are those reactionaries who do not see and will not admit that there is any need for change. Such men seem to believe that the four and a half million progressive voters, who in 1912 registered their solemn protest against our social and industrial injustices, are anarchists, who are not willing to let ill enough alone. If these reactionaries had lived at an earlier time in our history, they would have advocated sedition laws, opposed free speech and free assembly, and voted against free schools, free access by settlers to the public lands, mechanics' lien laws, the prohibition of truck stores, and the abolition of imprisonment for debt, and they are the men who to-day oppose minimum wage laws, insurance of workmen against the ills of industrial life, and the reform of our legislators and our courts, which can alone render such measures possible. Some of these reactionaries are not bad men, but merely short-sighted and belated. It is these reactionaries, however, who, by standing pat on industrial injustice, incite inevitably to industrial revolt, and it is only we who advocate political and industrial democracy who render possible the progress of our American industry on large constructive lines, with a minimum of friction, because with a maximum of justice. Everything possible should be done to secure the wage-workers' fair treatment. There should be an increased wage for the worker of increased productiveness. Everything possible should be done against the capitalist who strives, not to reward special efficiency, but to use it as an excuse for reducing the reward of moderate efficiency. The capitalist is an unworthy citizen who pays the efficient man no more than he has been content to pay the average man, and nevertheless reduces the wage of the average man, and effort should be made by the government to check and punish him. 
when labor-saving machinery is introduced, special care should be taken, by the government, if necessary, to see that the wage-worker gets his share of the benefit, and that it is not all absorbed by the employer or capitalist. The following case, which has come to my knowledge, illustrates what I mean. A number of new machines were installed in a certain shoe-factory, and as a result there was a heavy increase in production, even though there was no increase in the labor-force. Some of the workmen were instructed in the use of these machines by special demonstrators sent out by the makers of the machines. These men, by reason of their special aptitudes, and the fact that they were not called upon to operate the machines continuously, nine hours every day, week in and week out, but only for an hour or so at special times, were naturally able to run the machines at their maximum capacity. When these demonstrators had left the factory, and the company's own employees had become used to operating the machines at a fair rate of speed, the foreman of the establishment gradually speeded the machines, and demanded a larger and still larger output, constantly endeavoring to drive the men on to greater exertions. Even with a slightly less maximum capacity, the introduction of this machinery resulted in a great increase over former production with the same amount of labor, and so great were the profits from the business in the following two years as to equal the total capitalized stock of the company. But not a cent got into the pay envelope of the workmen beyond what they had formerly been receiving before the introduction of this new machinery, notwithstanding that it had meant an added strain, physical and mental, upon their energies, and that they were forced to work harder than ever before. The whole of the increased profits remained with the company. Now this represented an increase of efficiency, with a positive decrease of social and industrial justice. The increase of prosperity, which came from the increase of production, in no way benefited the wage-workers. I hold that they were treated with gross injustice, and that society, acting if necessary through the government, in such a case should bend its energies to remedy such injustice, and I will support any proper legislation that will aid in securing the desired end." The wage-worker should not only receive fair treatment, he should give fair treatment. In order that prosperity may be passed around, it is necessary that the prosperity exist. In order that labor shall receive its fair share in the division of reward, it is necessary that there be a reward to divide. Any proposal to reduce efficiency by insisting that the most efficient shall be limited in their output to what the least efficient can do, is a proposal to limit by so much production, and therefore to impoverish by so much the public, and specifically to reduce the amount that can be divided among the producers. This is all wrong. Our protest must be against unfair division of the reward for production. Every encouragement should be given the businessman, the employer, to make his business prosperous, and therefore to earn more money for himself, and in like fashion every encouragement should be given the efficient workman. We must always keep in mind that to reduce the amount of production serves merely to reduce the amount that is to be divided, is in no way permanently efficient as a protest against unequal distribution, and is permanently detrimental to the entire community. But increased productiveness is not secured by excessive labor amid unhealthy surroundings. The contrary is true. Shorter hours, and healthful conditions, and opportunity for the wage-worker to make more money, and the chance for enjoyment as well as work, add to efficiency. My contention is that there should be no penalization of efficient productiveness, brought about under healthy conditions, but that every increase of production brought about by an increase in efficiency should benefit all the parties to it, 
including wage workers as well as employers or capitalists, men who work with their hands as well as men who work with their heads. End of chapter 13, part 2